2 Corinthians 5, I want you to look with me again and notice in particular Paul's emphasis on the word know or, of course, knowing. For example, verse 1 opens with the words, for we know. We know, Paul says, that once this body, this frail tent is gone, we know we have in heaven a new house, an eternal house not made with hands. Now, wait a minute. How do we know this? We know? How do we know it, Paul? We haven't seen it. We haven't felt it. Notice verse 6. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Well, here again, all this knowledge and confidence, but how do we know? How do we know absent from the body means present with the Lord and vice versa, as this verse says? In the previous chapter, you look back at chapter 4 and verse 14, knowing, there's that word again, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall, that's another word of knowledge, present us with you. Knowing that, knowing that he which, it says we know that the same God who raised Jesus from the grave will raise up us also. Well, how do you know that? Turn ahead to chapter 8 a couple pages, if you would, because the answer to that question is in Romans 8, or 2 Corinthians 8, and it's stated in words that every Christian here can truly appreciate. If you're born again, if you're saved by the grace of God, you can truly appreciate this. Verse 9, for you know, same word, for ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. That ye through his poverty might be rich. Now wait a minute. The knowing that is described here in 2 Corinthians 8 9. He says, ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That knowledge and that knowing is the very reason for all of the other knowings. In other words, once you know the grace of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus, you really know, in essence, everything you need to know to know that you know all those previous knowings. Did you get that? Well, I think you will. I think you will in a few moments, and I hope you'll listen very carefully. I want to speak on the subject. Gnosko. Gnosko. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence and your promises. Thank you that we can know, truly know. Bless this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in Bible college, I only took two years of Greek. But my favorite Greek word in all of those two years was the word ginosko. It is a word that means knowledge that goes beyond information. And of course, you see this all through Scripture. Matthew 1.25 says that Joseph knew her not. That's ginosko. That's an intimate knowledge beyond just facts. When, Jesus said in Matthew 7.23, depart from me, I never knew you. That's ginosko. Of course, Jesus knew about them. He's God. Of course, he knew facts about false professors, but he didn't know them intimately or relationally. In John 10, when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep, and I am known of mine, that's all gnosko. As is the very next verse there in John 10, which says, As the Father knoweth me, 
Even so, I know the Father. That's pretty powerful because it's that same intimate, powerful knowing that Jesus attaches to us and himself. You see, make no mistake that the other Greek word used 318 times in the Bible, oida, is just merely a knowing of facts. Two plus two equals four. That's simple fact. It's easy to know. And once you master it, you know pretty much all there is to know about it. That kind of knowledge is also all through the Bible. The Pharisees knew Jesus. They knew who he was, but they didn't know him like John the Apostle knew him. Which brings us back to chapter 8 and verse 9. Because those of you in this room who know the grace of God, you know it intimately because you have experienced it. You've been transformed and redeemed, born again, by the same grace of God. Well, basically, those of you who know the grace of God, the only thing I can say is you know. It's kind of like, how many of you know this new chicken place called Raising Cane's? And you know what it's all about. How many of you have heard of it? Raise your hands. All right, that's a bunch of you. Wow, more than I thought. How many of you have actually had it? Raise your hands. Much, much less. So you see, in other words, some of you, a lot of you know, but a few of you know. Now, not long ago, I'd never even heard of it. And then I saw on the sleeve of Michael Brock, Michael Block, he was in the PGA Championship, and it was a big story, and I saw that logo, and I thought, well, I've never heard of that. But like most everyone here a few weeks ago, I knew, but I didn't know. But after this past week, I know. I've been there. I even came away with a T-shirt. Ansley's shaking her head. Come here, Ansley. Why don't you come up here real quick? Come on. She's shaking her head in disdain, and I'm going to tell you why. In other words, now look. Now I gnosko. I know intimately chicken fingers at Raising Cane's. Ansley has worked at Chick-fil-A since she was seven years old. Come here, Ansley. <laughs> she shook her head no like this when I've held it, so I'm going to use her. Is, is Raising Cane's better than Chick-fil-A? How do you know? I mean, how does she actually know? The truth is, she can't know. You know about this. Did you know about this before I mentioned it? You ever heard of it? No? Okay, you know about it now, but you don't know. You really don't know. However, as a gesture of faith, I got this shirt for you, Ansley. <laughs> Go forth to Raising Cane's. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And then take the good news yonder through the world. The Bible says go two by two. Take Mallory with you. You can go and go to all the world. Go ahead. Now look, she says, I, I, it's not better. You don't know what you don't know. Now let me say this. Every student of the Bible, every Christian who reads and loves the Word of God knows that there are in, in the Scriptures themselves certain texts, certain verses that are so sublime, that are so powerful and brimming over with truth and glory, that you could pro seriously contemplate the promises of that one verse, that text, for days and days. You could preach an entire series on that one verse. The amazing thing is that oftentimes these kinds of verses, as we've preached them here many, many times, 
These glorious truths oftentimes are situated right in the middle of some very practical earthly discussion. And that is exactly what's happening in 2 Corinthians. This here is the premier chapter in all of the New Testament on the subject of the offering, on giving. And in fact, it was a specific offering that the Corinthian church had been delinquent on taking. Look at the very next verse, verse 10. It says in here, and I give my advice, and this is expedient for you who have begun before not only to do, but also to be forward a year ago. Now therefore perform the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also out of that which ye have. It sounds like the minutes of a business meeting. Because it's a very practical chapter on giving that just happens to include what I think is the single greatest text in all of Scripture on the real reasoning and motivation for a child of God to give his life to Christ. The last line of verse 8 says, proving the sincerity of your love. Guess what? That sincerity, which we all want, is the fruit of knowing. Notice again how the text begins in verse 9. It says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ye know, genosko, you've experienced the grace of Jesus. So that yes, knowing the grace of God, which he's about to describe in about one moment, you know what you know. So that you know that there's a house in heaven not made with hands. You've experienced the grace of God. You know the grace of God that he's about to describe in a moment. And that's why you know that God's going to raise you up just as Christ was raised. So what is the grace of God? There are four things in verse 9. Don't miss them. Verse 9 again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich. That's number one. The first thing, follow this carefully, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich. That's the first part of understanding, knowing the grace of Jesus. Jesus was rich. That's his exaltation. Acts 2.33 says, therefore, being by the right hand of God, exalted. You see, beloved, the very first thing that you know about the grace of our Lord is that the Lord Jesus is God. Follow this carefully. Jesus did not become rich. He did not acquire riches. He did not receive riches. It wasn't a matter of our Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, attaining anything. It's as though he was rich. He was already rich. And that's why there is an eternal fundamental difference between God's grace and every semblance of religion anywhere else in the world. You do realize that you can take all of man's religions Whatever they are, cults, philosophies, Buddhism, Islam, Mormonism, Hinduism, humanism, I don't care what it is, whatever the religion is, if you will examine it, you will find that saving faith, the Christian faith, is the only one that did not begin on this earth. Christianity did not start in a stable and a manger. It started with the words, he was rich. In other words, it begins at the very throne of God. And that means that this faith, our faith, unlike any other, has the dimension of eternity so that our Lord could break out with those startling words to the people in Israel, before Abraham was, I am. We do not serve a man who somehow worked his way up to deity. 
We worship God who became flesh. Understand, he was rich. And beloved, the reason that Christianity hit the Roman Empire like a thunderbolt is that Bethlehem and Calvary are neither the beginning nor the, the, the finishing point, ending point of our faith. Oh, no, no, no. Before this, he was rich. Heaven is where it all began. And heaven is where it will forever be. And Paul says, you know this. You know the grace of our Lord. You know He was rich. And I'm telling you, go out to the Atlantic Ocean and look at its beauty and its marvel and go to the Arctic Ocean and go to all the oceans of the world and go to the Rockies and the Alps and the Smokies and the Himalayas. You look up tonight at a million stars in the sky and then with eyes of faith, look beyond them all the way into the glories of heaven and you recognize all that eternal glory and all of that wonder. It's His. He owns it. He made it. You know the grace of our Lord. He was rich because indeed he is God. That's number one, his exaltation. The second thing you'll notice, number two, is his humiliation. This is all part of the grace of God. Verse nine, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became, he became poor. Every believer here knows the record of Jesus's life. He was born in a barn in abject poverty. He worked in an occupied nation at a carpenter's bench. He published no books. He led no armies. The Bible says he had no place to lay his head. As Isaiah said, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You know why? Because he who was rich became poor. He became flesh. With all of the pains and the aches and the sweat and the tears. He was a victim of bigotry and slander, of lies and beatings and public humiliation. Even in his death, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. He became poor. And all through that poverty and all through the suffering and the shame and all that was around him, all along his rightful place was at the throne of God in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. But oh, he became poor. Philippians 2.7 says he made himself of no reputation, but took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Stripped of all of his glory and all of his reputation, he who was rich endured the cross, despised the shame. And Paul says, you know this. You know this. He who was rich became poor. You know, years ago in seminary, we had to read certain psychology books. And one of them talked about a lot about fear, the fears of man, man's fear. And of course, highest among those fears as I would read these books was was death itself, next to death itself, is the fear of losing control over one's place in life. A serious illness that progressively debilitates you so that over time you become less and less able to care for yourself. People fear that and thus become more and more dependent upon others to feed them, to drive them places, to dress, to bathe, to care for them. It's a great fear. It is this kind of helplessness and loss of control that man desperately fears. So, you know, every year when we sing about Christ coming to earth as an infant, as an obscure child to a poor family, 
We think about Jesus willingly leaving the throne of the universe. Willingly humbling himself and relinquishing control as a baby. As a baby. And that to a family who was subject to the rule of vile Caesars and Herods and Caiaphas' men of the worst sort. He became poor. I'll put it to you this way. Those of you in this room who love animals, if those animals needed saving, would you be willing to become one? Literally? In order to save them? Knowing, knowing that you would put down your human nature, leave your loved ones and your security and your environment, would you be willing to condescend to a world of animals, the majority of which would seek to destroy you and would never understand you? Folks, when Christ became a man, he chose a path of limiting and then losing the most precious thing in the world, his perfect eternal communion with the Father. Oh yeah, he who was rich became poor. And Paul says, you know this. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know why he did it? Why did he do this? Why this condescension? He says it in the text in verse 9, for, look at it, for your sakes. Oh yeah, he became poor. And he did it for you. People talk about the homeless. Jesus was. Hungry, suffering, oppressed, brokenhearted, poor, persecuted. Our Lord Jesus was all of that and much, much more. Because when it says he became poor, quote, for our sakes, it means that he also, it's not just his physical poverty, the Bible says he became a curse for us. For our sakes, he became spiritually poor, if you will. And you know this grace. We sing it in our hymns, and every prayer we give, and every sermon is the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. His exaltation, his humiliation, thirdly, you'll notice he reminds us of our degradation. Notice in the text it says that Christ became poor. Here it is, look at it, verse 9, that we might become rich. Well, That's a powerful implication because it reminds us that we're poor. That before and without Christ, we are eternally poor, desperately poor, spiritually, ethically, morally, intrinsically, absolute poverty. And you know something, folks? You know this. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ so that if you were to become a billionaire tomorrow by some happenstance and you had a billion dollars, but in order to get the billion dollars, you had to lose Christ forever. Would that be a bargain? Of course not. You may have a ton of money and you could buy anything you want, but you would be a beggar, poverty-stricken. Because, folks, you take the Son of God and His act of grace away from our lives, and all that is left is dust and ashes. And you know that. You know the grace of our Lord, and you know that without Him we are bankrupt. No one in this world is any poorer than the man who tries to live by bread alone. And Paul says, you know this grace. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 says, And ye who were dead in trespasses and sins. We were dead. You don't get any poorer than dead. Number one is exaltation. 
Number two, his humiliation. Number three is our degradation. This is all a part of the grace of God. And then number four, finally, you'll notice our glorification. Go back to verse nine, would you? For you know, gnosko, you know, you've experienced it. Ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Here it is, that ye, that's us, through his poverty might be rich. Can I ask you a question? Is it possible that the word rich at the end of verse 9 has any correlation to the word rich at the beginning of verse 9? Do our riches, in, in other words, have any relationship to Christ's riches? The one we just mentioned about the universe and the stars and the mountains. Do, is there any connection? Because, folks, that would be unbelievable. That would be indescribable. To use the Bible word in our King James, unspeakable, indescribable. Well, you'll notice Paul closes this discussion in the last verse of the next chapter, chapter 9, verse 15. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. In other words, here there is, yes, heirs of God and joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. Ye through his poverty might be rich. Hebrews 2.10 says, For it became Christ for whom are all things, by whom are all things, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Where are we going, Pastor? Glory. That's eternal riches. That is the grace of God. Philippians 3.21 says He will change our vile body to be a fashion like unto His glorious body. His glorious body. His riches. Our riches. I love the Scripture in Romans 9 where it says that God has made known He has made known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy. What a truth. You see, folks, He took us in our poverty and by His grace and mercy is making us exceedingly wealthy. Paul says in Ephesians, He has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Yeah, we're rich. That's why the Bible says in Corinthians, we have this treasure in earth, this treasure in earthen vessels. And the scripture says we have it forever. You know, I remember when Rick was, in, uh, was graduating in college years ago. Some of our friends in Knoxville wanted to give him a surprise graduation party. And it so happened that these friends, these old-time friends we'd known for many years, lived in a very historic home in, in Tennessee, and they completely restored it, the, the people who had founded Stokely, Stokely Van Camp. And as soon as we pulled up, Ben was a little boy, and he said, is, is this a mansion? Because it had the columns. Is it a mansion? And I wasn't really paying. I said, yeah, it's a mansion, whatever. We go inside and helping everybody prepare. Ben's running around, playing games with the kids, exploring the mansion. I go into another room and I find him sitting there with the owner of the house, our old friends, and he's sitting in chair asking him questions. So Mr. Muddy, Buddy is his name. How did you get a mansion before you got to heaven? How much does a mansion cost? I pulled him out and I said, Ben, don't, don't ask him any more questions about his house. He said, you said it was a mansion, not a house. We're on our way driving home one day and uh, at, later on, a couple days later, and Ben says, uh, by the way, Dad, that's not a mansion. I said, why? He says, because there's pieces of wood that's broken and there's things that don't work. And 
our mansion in heaven is perfect. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. You know what God says? He says, you know it. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? He who was rich, exaltation, for your sakes became poor, humiliation, that ye might be degradation, we're sinners, and then glorification. Paul's words have, have, have gone through all four, four parts of the compass. But I'm going to close with this. Because there's a reason, there is a reason why the Holy Spirit has put this truth in the center of this text. There is a reason for reminding us what we know about the grace of God. I want to remind you again, this is a chapter on giving. And herein he says, I give my advice. Here's my counsel about what, you do, what to do about the offering. He says, you know his grace. He says, you people in Corinth, you know that Christ did this colossal, marvelous, eternal, sacrificial thing for us. Can you not therefore do a minor thing for him? You say, Pastor, what? Give the offering? Actually, no. It's before that. And it's much deeper than that. It's in verse 5, and you see these words. Look at it in the middle of the verse. They gave their own selves. In other words, their heart, their mind, their hands, their feet, they gave their own selves because he who was very rich became very poor so that we who were very poor might become very, very rich. That is the grace of God. And Paul says this, you don't just know it. He says, you know it. You know it if you're saved. You know, it's interesting. We've mentioned the incarnation, the birth of Jesus a lot this morning. Well, you know, two weeks from today, June the 25th, is a Leon day. Leon is Noel spelled backward. And that's because June the 25th, as many of you know, is the exact halfway point to Christmas. Doesn't mean a thing to me. Except as a reminder that as, as far away on the calendar as you can get from carols and songs and joy and lights and hope and gifts and Hallmark Channel or whatever, Christians still have all of that in full measure. As far away from what people are grasping for every December, right here on this summer day, almost summer day, we have all of that joy in full measure. Christmas Eve this year is on Sunday night. But it is the grace of God on this Sunday and every Sunday that we know. And because we know, we can say together, thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. And from that gratitude, when it says in the Scriptures, the love of Christ constraineth us. I don't know why you came here today, but it ought to be because you love Jesus and what He's done for you. And when you walk out those doors, recognizing that the Scriptures are very clear, when it says that His commandments are not grievous, we don't look in the Bible and say, oh, I can't do this, I have to do this, I have to be in church, I have to sing. His commandments are not grievous. You know why? Because we loved Him who first loved us. If you're here this morning and you're saved, this is what this verse says about you. Gnosko, you know this. 
you know the grace of God. You've experienced it and you know that God has a house in heaven not made with hands eternal for you. You know it. You know that he's going to raise you again because you've experienced salvation by faith. But if you've never accepted Christ as Savior, you don't know it. You better not think you know it. That's why you have the fears. That's why you can't be committed. You can't be committed to someone you don't truly know. But today you can know him. Our heads are bowed, please, and our eyes are closed for just a moment. You know, I don't know what your need is this morning. I really don't. I know a handful of you for sure we've talked, but the vast majority of you have a spiritual need that goes deeper than your physical need. It goes deeper than your material need. And the spiritual need, God knows what it is, and the Holy Spirit knows. And if you're saved here this morning, God has declared that as a child of God, you know, you know, there's a scripture where Paul says we know all things. He's almost saying like we're a know-it-all. But it doesn't mean we know all the facts. It just means that we know all things that are important. We just discussed the four most important of all. He who was rich became poor so that we in our poverty might become rich. That's the grace of God. And that love, the love of Christ should constrain us. Pastor Blaylock, I'm here today, and I am saved by the grace and the mercy of God, but I needed this message. I needed this reminder. And as a Christian, as a child of God, the Lord has spoken to my heart about something. With heads bowed, eyes closed, who would say that? Would you lift your hands up through the building as a child of God? And amen and amen. Praise the Lord. You know, in the last words of the Bible in Revelation, it says that we're all going to gather around the throne, including martyrs who suffered, including people who gave their lives, and we're all going to sing the same song, Thou Art Worthy. You know why we're going to sing that? Because we will see what we know today of the grace of God. He is worthy. He is worthy of our all, our hands, our eyes, our feet, our entire heart. So give it to him. You know the grace of God. You're giving their own selves also. He's worthy. Maybe again you're here today and you've never experienced the grace of God. I'm not talking about being religious or going to church or having a church membership or being baptized or taking the sacraments. You're too poor. Sinners are way too poor, bankrupt, to buy their way into heaven or earn a single brick in glory. But you can experience the grace of God. That's God giving you what you don't deserve and his mercy. You can experience his grace this morning if you'll receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And if that's you, I'd love to pray for you. I won't come down. I won't embarrass you, but I would pray for you. Pastor Blalock, that's me. I don't know today. If I died, I'd be in heaven. But would you pray for me? Maybe you're at home watching, but in this room for sure with no one looking. Pray for me, Pastor Blalock, that I could know what it means to be saved with heads bowed. Who would say that? Would you lift your hands through the building? Young man, I see your hand. Someone else? And again at home where you are? We're going to pray in a moment and have a time of invitation. And I encourage you to do business with the Lord. As Christians in this room, my goodness. Well, Pastor, I've sacrificed. You haven't sacrificed. Jesus did all the sacrificing on the cross. What awaits you is eternal glory. And he's worthy of your service and your life and your holy living. Father, bless now the invitation. We thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you for your grace.
in a world that has no knowledge of you, no knowledge of eternity and of heaven, of its promises. As we had at this altar yesterday, family members who sorrow but not as others who have no hope. You see the faith. Thank you. It's a gift from you, Lord, because it's part of your grace and we're grateful. But help us to recognize, Father, that this glorious, magnificent truth is placed right in the middle of instructions about Christians who aren't giving of themselves to you. And may we do all of it. For those who are not sure about salvation, may they come to Jesus today. We'll praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact us through our website at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's beaconbaptistchurch.org. May the Lord bless you.